This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Linda Mottram. Tonight, in the middle of an election campaign, a huge leap in inflation shows the financial well-being of many Australians is in decline and a rate rise looms. Also, the government misleadingly labels a cap on emissions a carbon tax, but it's a mechanism that has the support of even the business lobby. You don't have to pay any fees. If you remain under your cap, there's no cost imposed. The coalition now sees an opportunity to try and label Labor's policy as a carbon tax, even though they're using the mechanism that the coalition themselves have invented. And what do the major parties have in store for Medicare? Analysis for you of how health services are funded and why some doctors are desperate for a pay rise. The reason we're having issues is that we've got a fixed fee model. It's harder to fund our GP services. In fact, our GP services run at a loss. Welcome to the program. Well, it's hardly a surprise for anyone who shops for groceries or puts fuel in a car or buys building materials for a new home. But today, the official inflation rate had some people catching their breath. Inflation is up 2.1% for the March quarter. That makes a massive leap in the cost of living of 5.1% for the year, the biggest surge in more than two decades. Now there is massive pressure, election campaign or not, for the Reserve Bank to raise official interest rates as soon as next week. Samantha Donovan has our first report tonight. For many Australians, the cost of living is their top election issue, and today's economic figures confirm those worries are justified. The Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Inflation in Australia is up 2.1% in the March quarter and 5.1% through the year. Key drivers were housing, food and transport costs. The single biggest increase was fuel prices, up 11% in the quarter and 35% higher through the year. This is the single biggest increase in fuel prices since Iraq's invasion of Kuwait more than 30 years ago. The big rise in the cost of living even surprised economists like Nikki Hutley. It was definitely higher than I and most of the market had been expecting. It's, um, it's a bit of a shock, to be honest. Looking at the breakdown of the figures, was there anything here of particular note to you? Yeah, I mean, we've seen, I think one of the perhaps alarming things for a lot of people is the rise in non-discretionary inflation. So things like food and housing and obviously your transport costs, those, the actual price rise there was 6.6%, 3% for the quarter, 6.6% for the year. So even higher than the average of the CPI. That'll, that'll be really hitting a lot of people because you can not buy those discretionary items. You can save your money. But when it comes to basic things like food, you don't have much choice about how you allocate your your spending. And how difficult does that make things for workers who just aren't getting wage increases? Well, look, it makes things incredibly difficult, not only for workers, but if we think about people who are on New Start, on pensions, who are on, you know, lower than average incomes, these people are doing it very, very tough. You know, with this, we're in a we're in a difficult situation. We've got supply chain disruptions in part due, due to COVID. We've obviously got the disruptions because of the, the war in Ukraine. You know, we're just facing a lot of disruption. Do you think there should be a rate rise next week by the Reserve Bank? 
Look, I think it's time we started normalising uh, rates. So, yes, I, I do think we can't wait any longer. Um, rates are abnormally low and there is there is cause to, to, to get them going. We know it's going to happen sooner or later, so you may as well do it sooner. But I just think we also need to be, um, you know, some caution about how quickly we go on the rate rise journey. The Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, says voters need to keep today's inflation figures in mind when casting their vote next month. Today's higher inflation numbers are a reminder to Australians that we are living in a complex and volatile economic environment. Today's inflation numbers are a reminder to all Australians of the importance of strong and effective economic management. But the shadow treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is blaming the government for the soaring inflation figures. This is Scott Morrison's triple whammy of skyrocketing costs of living, rising interest rates and falling real wages. This inflation number should be a wake-up call for a government which is out of touch, out of plans and out of time. Stephen Hamilton, a visiting fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU, says the next government must take steps to cool the economy. If you think of the $1,500 payments that are going to go out to people in their tax returns, the $250 payments to pensioners, the fuel excise, uh, you put all of that together and it's a significant amount of economic support to be sending out at a time where we're really past the pandemic, right? We're past the crisis. We're at a time where we should be withdrawing economic support from the economy. Instead, because we have an election next month, we're pumping more and more money into the economy, uh, which would be okay if inflation were lower, right? But given that we already have all of these other pressures pushing inflation up, pushing prices up, to add further fuel to that fire uh, is, I think, ill-designed. And I think, certainly, it would be figuring into the Reserve Bank's thinking looking at the outlook for inflation, thinking about whether it wants to get started now to taper interest rates to start bringing that inflationary pressure under control. Stephen Hamilton is a visiting fellow at the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. Samantha Donovan, our reporter there. Well, two major banks have now revised their forecasts for the timing of an interest rate rise to predict that the Reserve Bank will move as soon as next month, making for a clash with the election. A third major bank is pointing to a June rise. But whenever it comes, the harsh realities are already rattling businesses and consumers. Matt Bamford has this report. Sydney cafe owner Lazio Habinski is too young to remember the days when interest rates were at 18%. Yeah, I remember hearing about it, but I never really inquired. I never really asked any questions. I think I might have to kind of, you know, ask that generation how they got through it. News that inflation has just hit 5% is a shock. Never been in this position before and I don't know what to expect. We just hope that everything starts to to balance out a little bit, you know, so we can all kind of just feel a little bit more secure with finances and business. He's already noticing a hit to his bottom line. You know, a lot of our produce from the fruit and veg to uh, the packaging, the coffee, the milk, everything's been increasing. Um, Luckily, the rent hasn't increased yet yet yeah we're just we're just trying to figure out how to manage that without impacting the customer too much millions of australians will be reviewing their budgets if they haven't already with confirmation that inflation has risen to levels not seen in 20 years balmain publican maureen thornett says it's a cruel blow for small businesses after two years of covid disruptions she's anxious about the months ahead i think the pressures that small business is facing is not only a rate rise, 
but also I think the impact um, post-pandemic of labour shortages, the supply chain, the cost of goods um, has all gone up. An interest rate hike could happen as soon as next month. A 0.4% rise in the cash rate could add an extra $100 a month to the repayments of a $500,000 mortgage. For those looking to buy a home, like software engineer Hugh Mai, it's another thing to consider. Your repayments are also going to be higher though, right? Yeah, yeah. So is that something you're going to have to factor in? You might have to save more money? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Do you think that's going to put back your timeline for buying a house? Um, maybe next year. Maybe waiting for after election and then decide. Sarah Meganson from comparison site Finder says there are now multiple economic pressure points. It's a bit of a double whammy at the moment. We've got a rising inflation at a rate that is much more than people were expecting. Um, and at the same time, we've got interest rates heading up much earlier than we were expecting. So prices are going up on everyday items and mortgages are going up. Um, and then the extra layer to that is that property prices are starting to stagnate or in some cases go backwards. While it'll become harder for those with a mortgage, Australians who have healthy savings stand to benefit. Paul Bickford thinks he'll be spared the worst. So are you going to be doing any changes to your budget? Uh, not at this stage. Um, fortunately, we don't have a mortgage, but uh, uh, we are looking at purchasing property, but uh, basically I'm waiting for uh, the bubble to burst. So. Finders Sarah Meganson says there are options for those feeling overwhelmed. I think at the moment there is a lot of concern or fear about all of this stuff. It is a really concerning time with bills going up and mortgages going up and people can get really concerned, um, which is totally understandable. But if you are feeling worried about your finances, I would recommend you just take stock. Stop and have a look at everything. Don't be afraid to reach out to your bank or your provider if you need a little bit more help with your bills. Finders Senior Editor Sarah Meganson, Matt Bamford with that report. You're listening to PM, I'm Linda Mottram. Ahead, sobered by the Russian threat, some 40 nations meet on how to defeat Vladimir Putin in Ukraine, sending heavy weapons as the US talks about winning. This is an enormous shift to basically saying to Ukrainian officials, we have your back come hell or high water. It's hard to overstate how this really has become the central issue in American foreign policy. Staying on the election campaign at the moment and Labor has fired back at suggestions made by the Prime Minister Scott Morrison today that they're preparing what the Coalition has called a sneaky carbon tax, another echo of past election campaigns. On the road in regional Queensland, Scott Morrison told reporters that a policy initially introduced by the Liberal government would be used by Labor to tax traditional industries for their carbon emissions. But that turns out to be misleading. Isabel Rowe reports. Good morning, everyone. G'day, here you go. So I heard it's been pretty dry. The weather is an easy conversation starter in central Queensland, and so is the politics of mining and climate. And resources, all of these things, but uh, can't tax them all, <laughs> certainly. And we're not doing that. Sure, we're not doing that. Uh, Labor Party's a different matter. While campaigning in Rockhampton today, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison pulled out a trusted campaign tactic in regional Queensland, appealing to the local resources sector and declaring his opponents would implement a carbon tax. There's a sneaky carbon tax which Labor is putting in place and it's not just on the coal mining industry. Here in, in Rockhampton and central Queensland, it's on, it's on fuel supplies, it's on petroleum, it's on gas. 
What Scott Morrison was referring to as a carbon tax is called the safeguard mechanism. But it's not a Labor policy. It's something former Liberal Prime Minister Tony Abbott introduced to encourage big companies to keep their greenhouse gas emissions low. Michael Mazengarb is a reporter with energy news website Renew Economy. What the safeguard mechanism does is it imposes a cap on around 200 of Australia's largest industrial emitters. Um, And that cap is supposed to limit increases in greenhouse gas emissions from those companies. The safeguard mechanism has been in place for about five or six years now. Um, Under the the coalition, the, the caps that are imposed on emitters have generally been pretty soft. A handful of big companies were penalised under this rule just last year and they were required to purchase carbon credits to offset their emissions elsewhere. Michael Mazengarb says Labor is proposing to use the same rule a bit differently. Labor is proposing to effectively strengthen those caps, so making it more likely that the companies that are covered by the safeguard mechanism are going to have to do something about either stopping increases in their emissions or reducing emissions from their current levels. The Prime Minister has been criticised for calling it a sneaky carbon tax. Why is this not a tax in your view? Well, when we talk about carbon taxes as a policy mechanism, what we talk about it is something similar to what was implemented under the Gillard government, which is imposing a price on all emissions. Under the safeguard mechanism, you don't have to pay any fees. If you remain under your cap, There's no cost imposed. The coalition now sees an opportunity to try and label um, Labor's policy as a carbon tax, even though they're using the mechanism that the coalition themselves have invented. Shortly after the Prime Minister's comments, the Business Council of Australia released a statement pointing out it supports the safeguard mechanism. Labor's spokesman Jason Clare labelled the comments as another scare campaign. Tony Abbott apparently created a carbon tax. If you believe that, I've got a harbour bridge I'd like to sell you. I reckon most people who are watching here at the moment have had a gut full of this. They're sick of politicians fighting about climate change. The fight about climate change continues within the coalition as well. Queensland-based National Senator Matt Canavan has continued to say he believes his party's policy of net zero emissions by 2050 won't happen. If net zero is alive and kicking, why are European countries desperate for our coal right now? Victorian Nationals MP Darren Chester told ABC Radio Melbourne his Queensland colleague is mistaken. I'm afraid that Matt Canavan is becoming like that Japanese intelligence officer Noda who refused to accept that World War II was over and hid in the Philippine jungle for 30 years. This is a, a, an attempt to get some political advantage in one or two seats in central Queensland, which should be knocked back for this. Nationals MP Darren Chester, Isabel Rowe reporting. Well, doctors are pressing in this election campaign for reform to Medicare, with GPs saying the current fee-for-service rebate system is making it harder and harder to serve vulnerable patients. They also argue it's contributing to the shortage of GPs that's left the sector under immense pressure. And what about the question of whether the government has cut or boosted funding for Medicare? David Sparks reports. For many Australians, Medicare is more than an election topic. It's essential to their survival. That's the case for 57-year-old paraplegic Indy. Uh, I've got a number of needs because uh, when you're on a wheelchair, um, other things go wrong as well. It's not just about the spine and walking. I'm incontinent and due to that you get um, infections. 
Indy relies heavily on his GP at a community health organisation in Melbourne called CoHealth. Thanks to Medicare, his GP services are free. If it wasn't for that, he'd be in big trouble. Oh, I would not be able to live because, um, you know, that what, what little I have left after paying rent, I definitely, with with the medications that I need and the and the monthly checkups that I need, um, I would not be able to cope. So Medicare is a big godsend. CoHealth says there's a major flaw with Medicare, pushing services like theirs to the brink. The rebate they receive every time their GPs see a patient is fixed, and it's rarely enough to cover the real costs of the appointment. CoHealth GP Nicole Allard explains. To fund our general practitioners, we're relying on the Medicare rebate to fund their work. And the reason we're having um, issues is that we've got a fixed fee model, which basically encourages high throughput. And the longer you spend, the less financially viable it becomes. So if you're doing longer appointments, rather than quicker turnover 10-minute appointments, then you are generating less Medicare income per hour. And For our clients, a lot of them have very complex needs and we will be scheduling longer appointment times um, for their multiple health issues and it's harder to fund our GP services. In fact, our GP services run at a loss. Dr Nicole Allard says that's making it harder to pay GPs a competitive salary, which is contributing to the big shortage of GPs in community health. CoHealth wants the fixed fee model replaced with what it calls a blended model. So a blended model would be using the Medicare rebate but then having some sort of acknowledgement of the extra work that is done as part of seeing vulnerable client groups. Financial acknowledgement, obviously. Yeah. Another organisation calling for big changes to Medicare is the Australian Medical Association. Dr Omar Korshid is its national president. The government appears to be sitting back on its record saying that that everything's been okay in health. They've supported the country through the pandemic and in doing so they implemented telehealth which was a a major reform which uh, has the strong support of the medical profession. Uh, But of course uh, what's coming from the government when it comes to Medicare? Very little. When it comes to Labor, uh, they say uh, they're always better on Medicare than the government, but they're sitting back on their laurels a little much, uh, unfortunately. So far, we've uh, heard of some fairly small announcements, including uh, a trial of some urgent care clinics, which we are absolutely certain will not do anything to improve the quality of primary care in the community. So there's a long way to go from both parties on uh, Medicare, and we're really hoping to hear more from both before the end of the election campaign. Labor insists the government has cut Medicare funding, while the government insists funding is going up. So who's right? David, it would be nice if there was a simple, straightforward answer, but there isn't. Jane Hall is a distinguished professor of health economics at the University of Technology, Sydney. What we know is that uh, growth in Medicare expenditure is positive and it's exceeded growth in GDP consistently over several governments, not just this one. But of course, there are a number of reasons why Medicare expenditure grows. It grows because uh, the population gets bigger um, and it changes because uh, health prices go up. The prices of health services go up just as prices generally in the economy go up. So have the increases in Medicare funding kept up with all those rising costs? One of the interesting issues, I think, is around the fees that are 
on the Medicare benefit schedules. Beginning in 2014, those increases were frozen. But since 2017, those price increases have been phased in and we're now seeing the price increases again. But I think what people have probably noticed, I think there are two things that happen. One is, are you paying more out of pocket for your healthcare services? And of course, that's been going up as well, just as, as cost of living has gone up. And I think one of the impacts of the freeze was that to keep pace with general inflation, that out-of-pocket component of doctor's fees was often going up. So people are probably aware that they've been spending more out-of-pocket than they were before. Jane Hall is a Distinguished Professor of Health Economics at the University of Technology, Sydney. David Sparks with that report. Well, Russia has upped the ante for Europe over the war in Ukraine. Moscow halted the supply of natural gas to Poland and plans to do the same to Bulgaria, ostensibly over the failure of those nations to meet a demand to pay in Russian currency. But it's also seen as retaliation for hardening international sanctions against Russia and for the West's escalating supply of weapons to Ukraine to aid its fight against Russia's unprovoked invasion. And we'll look at the weapons supply in more detail in a moment. But first, here's Rachel Mealy on the energy politics of the conflict. Russia had warned that it would turn off the taps unless it was paid in its own currency, the Russian ruble. But Poland and Bulgaria have refused. Poland's Prime Minister, Mateusz Morawiecki, is assuring his people that everything will be OK. Poland had previously prepared to diversify gas supplies and to obtain gas from various directions. And even before the Baltic gas pipeline is launched, we will be able to protect our economy, protect households and Poles against such a dramatic step by Russia. He says Poland has plenty of gas on hand. Our gas storages are 76% full. This is a high level, much higher than in most European countries. We will be able to draw on our resources as well as obtain gas from all possible other directions. The Russian action comes in retaliation to the steady pipeline of weapons flowing into Ukraine. The US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin has urged Western nations to continue sending weapons. But we don't have any time to waste. The briefings today laid out clearly why the coming weeks will be so crucial for Ukraine. So we've got to move at the speed of war. He was speaking in Germany at a meeting involving officials from 40 countries. We're going to build on today's progress and continue to reach out to nations of goodwill to help Ukraine defend itself. And we'll continue working transparently and urgently with our allies and partners. And we'll continue pushing to support and strengthen the Ukrainian military for the battles ahead. So we leave tonight strengthened, and so does Ukraine. Germany has answered the call, though it's previously been accused of dragging its heels on help for Ukraine. It's now promised to supply almost 50 anti-aircraft tanks. And I wanted to especially welcome a major decision by our German host, as uh, Minister Lambrecht announced just today that Germany will send Ukraine some 50 Cheetah anti-aircraft systems. 
Ukraine's Defence Minister Alexei Reznikov was in Germany for the meeting. He tweeted, We need weapons, modern weapons, a large number of modern heavy weapons. On the front line, Russian forces continue their assault on the east and south of Ukraine. Explosions have rocked Transnistria, which is within Moldova on the border of Ukraine, sparking fears that the war is now spilling into neighbouring countries. But Ukraine says Russia orchestrated the blasts in what's known as a false flag attack. Rachel Mealy with that report. Well, those international talks on the conflict will now become monthly in a major new push to deal with a dangerous autocrat threatening global order. The US, joined by Canada and today Australia, are all sending heavy artillery to Ukraine in the form of howitzer guns, while Washington is also now talking not just of supporting Ukraine but of defeating Russia in this conflict. And significantly, Germany, as Rachel mentioned, also used the meeting to announce a major shift in its willingness to arm Ukraine. I asked Jack Detch, who's national security reporter for Foreign Policy magazine, first about Germany's pledge and its importance. So Germany is pledging new air defence tanks that would come in with air defence batteries on top of them. This could be potentially significant in the fight for the Donbass, which uh, the air war is going to be obscured by the clouds. So Russian jets already have to fly considerably lower than they would usually. Uh, This potentially gives the Ukrainians ability to pick them off, uh, not only with the Stinger anti-aircraft missiles that have been provided by the United States, the UK and other allies, but just another weapon in the arsenal uh, against the Russians who are going to be facing a tough fight in the Donbass against still a very capable Ukrainian force. Politically for Germany, this is a, a big step, isn't it? A big change. Of course. I mean, certainly Olaf Scholz has faced a lot of criticism, both domestically and within Europe, for being one of the slower nations to outfit Ukraine with more weapons, despite having a considerable defense industrial base. This helps Scholz certainly shunt off some criticism domestically. It's not clear whether it's going to bring the Germans forward on on other capabilities, but certainly uh, when it comes to drones and and other things that the Germans have in the arsenal, uh, the Ukrainians would like to take anything they could get at this point. Yeah, indeed. Um, Now, the US has also really ramped up its military supplies to Ukraine too. So can you run us through what's being sent and what that's doing for Ukraine's fighting capacity? The biggest change in the past couple of weeks is the United States beginning to send in artillery batteries, uh, howitzer artillery to the Ukrainians. Uh, This is important because the Donbass with that air cover and cloud cover coming in could be much more of a a knockdown drag out slugfest between infantry forces and the Ukrainians will sort of need as much ammunition as they could have to force the Russians on their heels in the Donbass. So too, we're seeing loitering munitions uh, like switchblade drones, uh, as well as the new Phoenix ghost drones that were previously uh, late in development. Uh, These will be important for hitting Russian stationary targets, potentially like tanks and and armored vehicles. They can just stay over the battlefield for for many hours. So this this gives the Ukrainians more persistence over the battlefield in addition to the commercial drones that they've been getting from everywhere, from Poland, uh, from Turkey, uh, Chinese drones, even the DJI drones. 
that is really just giving the Ukrainians a tremendous visibility over what's going on in that region. Yeah, the whole kind of drone aspect of this conflict is very interesting. Um, now, the US President Joe Biden has recently been talking to US arms manufacturers too. One of them is Raytheon, who seem to be saying publicly that they could run out of those crucial surface-to-air stinger missiles, those short shoulder launch things that you mentioned earlier that Ukraine's been using to such great effect against Russia. So can those supplies be kept up? What's the read on that? That's right. Raytheon CEO said in an earnings call today, they're basically going to need to redesign components in the the Stinger anti-aircraft missile, which goes back all the way to the 1980s. The U.S. was using them uh, to arm the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviets. So you're looking at an upgrade to the to the missile system, potentially the heat seeking head that helps the stingers track their and lock on to the to their air targets. Uh, this could take months, uh, potentially, you know, even up to years. So the the Ukrainians may need to find another way uh, to backfill these capabilities. Now, on the current state of the war, what's the thinking in the Pentagon where you report from in terms of how successful Russia might be in the Donbass in the east and down to the south and whether this is about winning this war and actually driving Russia out of Ukraine? So that's the fascinating change that we've seen in in rhetoric from the United States in the in the past week. The rhetoric has changed from just basically holding the Russians back to making sure the Ukrainians could hold out uh, to now American officials like Lloyd Austin talking about victory uh, and a weakened Russia coming out of this conflict that can no longer threaten its neighbors like Georgia, like Ukraine and Moldova. This is an enormous shift to basically saying to Ukrainian officials we have your back come hell or high water, that as long as this conflict goes on, the American policy is going to be to arm Ukraine. It's hard to overstate how this really has become the the central issue in American foreign policy, even as the Biden administration wants to say their focus is on Asia. Everyone's eyeballs in Washington are on this. Jack Ditch, very good to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Linda. Jack Ditch is National Security Reporter for Foreign Policy magazine and more of that conversation at the PM webpage on the current state of the fight for the Donbass and Russia's nuclear threats. Well, that's PM for this Wednesday. I'm Linda Mottram. Thank you for listening. Hope you'll join me again tomorrow. Don't forget ABC News Daily. The podcast is out for you in the morning. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.